Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Join me in prayer as we continue. Our Father, we we do know, I trust that we know that Worshiping you in spirit and in truth means that we acknowledge you for who you are, that we acknowledge you for your mighty works, for your triumphal power. And in these things, we are reminded of who we are in relation to you. And it's a good thing to be reminded of the need to live by faith and not by sight. And we know that it is perhaps ironically to us, but nonetheless true, that we are the most truly faithful. We are the most truly people who live by faith when we face difficulties, challenges, things we can't understand, things we can't sort out, things we can't resolve, things that we have no way of of navigating through based on what we know, what we've experienced, what we can predict, what we can expect. And it's in those times when we truly learn what it is to find you to be our rock and our refuge and to trust you and your wisdom and your power and to be faithful in the day, to be faithful with what it is that you put in front of us And let it be enough for us to walk with you day by day. As Paul says, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward towards the goal of the prize, that upward call that we have in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would be such people. Father, may your goodness and your love and the life that we have in Christ and the power of your spirit, may that be enough for us not just to endure through our days, but to find all joy and peace and hope in believing. I pray that our consideration of Moses and this great Passover uh, event today will encourage us in this way, that it will encourage us in faith. It will cause us to see that the lives that we live, the calling that we have, the challenges that we face, the obligation of faith that is ours, is the one that you have always required of your people. And we can find great comfort and we can find great encouragement in those who've gone before. Let it be so for us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in Hebrews 11 today, we come to the end of the writer's treatment, specifically of Moses and and his faith. And we've seen that the writer has uh, kind of encapsulated Moses' faith by simply pointing to uh, brief episodes. He just kind of 
touches briefly on certain things, but in doing that, he intends that that his readers who have a Jewish background will have a, a sense of the surrounding ideas and, and will be able to, in a sense, pull the whole story together and, and have a broader sense of, of the faith of this man, not just in these specific things that he cites, but, but the whole of Moses' life, the whole of his walk with the Lord, and that his readers would find encouragement in their own struggles in that way. So the first two things that we've seen with respect to Moses uh, were part of the same basic episode, uh, that occasion in which Moses was in his own spirit tested as to whether he would step forward, whether he would own his own calling, whether he would own his own Hebrew identity or continue to live in the stability and the settledness and and, uh, the ease of his life as a prince of Egypt. But this last episode that we're going to consider today actually takes that that faith of Moses by which he renounced the life that he had lived, renounced his own Egyptian background, and owned in a true way his Hebrew faith, his his Hebrew identity, and his Hebrew calling. Uh, This last instance that the writer cites actually takes that embrace and renunciation to its climactic high point. That's this episode of the Passover. And again, the writer only mentions the Passover event, but he understood that that specific event was itself the climax of a whole uh, protracted series of, of tests and challenges, confrontation between uh, the gods of Egypt And Yahweh, the God of Israel, carried out through the conflict between Moses with Aaron at his side and the Pharaoh of Egypt. This episode, and this is where we'll be drawing from today, is recorded in in the book of Exodus, obviously, chapters 3 through 12. So um, we'll be turning back there and drawing from that as we go forward. But the verse in, in particular in Hebrews 11 today is verse 28, but I'd like to back up to verse 23, just to capture this whole Moses context that the writer of Hebrews deals with. He says in verse 23, by faith Moses, and this is actually the faith of his parents, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a distinctive child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith Moses, when he had grown up, when he was about 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, the Israelite covenant house, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, life as a prince of Egypt. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And we considered that last time, that this is really focusing on the period in Midian. And then verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. As I said, this account, and the writer doesn't give any further explanation, he has Jewish readers who he knows understand the story 
And so they can fill in the blanks. And, and we're probably, at least many of us, more or less familiar with the Exodus story. But I want to try to draw out some of these ideas and, and what I think uh, are the focal points of the writer's consideration, the Hebrews writer. As I said, this begins with Exodus chapter 3 and an encounter that comes between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Moses at the end of 40 years in Midian. As I said last time, Moses' life really is broken down into three sets of 40, each of which which represented its own time of testing. Moses as a prince in Egypt, Moses in a time of preparation and waiting and humiliation in a sense, as a shepherd in Midian, and then Moses leading the sons of Israel through the wilderness only to finally die himself outside of the land and not gain the entrance that he had looked towards and led the people towards for all of those years. But in chapter 3 of Exodus, we have uh, the record of this commissioning of Moses. We talked about the fact that uh, the, the scriptures indicate that Moses had a sense of his own calling, that God had ordained him to be his deliverer, the sons of Israel, even while he was still in Egypt. Stephen's account of that episode has Stephen saying that Moses supposed that his brethren would understand that God had raised him up to deliver them when he intervened between the two um, Israelites fighting in Egypt. And so we have at least some sense from the scriptures that Moses had a sense of his calling. Now, he had spent many years, 40 years, in Midian tending sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. He had married, he had had children, 40 years of waiting, 40 years of going about the work that presented itself to him at that time. And he found himself at Mount Horeb. Now, we often hear Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. They're basically synonymous. I think probably the best explanation is that Horeb refers to the particular mountain. Sinai refers to that mountainous region of which the mountain of God was one. But this encounter takes place at Horeb, which God will even tell Moses, and we see later on in Exodus, it becomes the place to which Moses brings the Israelites to have their own covenant relationship with God ratified. And so God encounters Moses at Mount Horeb. It says in 3.1, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. This is the Sinai wilderness. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and the bush was burning with fire, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when Yahweh, God of Israel, saw, he turned aside to look. He called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now listen to how God introduces himself to Moses. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
This is already showing that this is a covenantal context, right? God doesn't just say, I'm the creator God, I'm the almighty God, there are no other gods beside me. He presents himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that important? Because God had promised to the patriarchs that a season of enslavement and oppression was coming. They would not inherit the land right away. They would not inherit the covenant blessings right away. But God would prove faithful, and the day would come when he would arise and he would do this work. And so already the indication is the time has come. The God of the patriarchs has now come to the time in which he's going to arise, and he's going to prove himself faithful. So the location is important. Horeb is important because it's the place to which Moses will bring the people where the covenant relationship will be ratified in this thing that we call the law of Moses. And the way God introduces himself is also important. He is the covenant God. And so though Israel has spent more than 200 years in Egypt, and we talked about you know, how to really reckon the 430 years idea, but they had spent a couple of centuries in Egypt and had lost sight of their God. In Ezekiel's prophecy, God says, the people had forgotten me. I had to reintroduce myself to them. They forgot me. I didn't forget them. I didn't forget my covenant. In their suffering, even in their ease, in a certain sense, the first period of their time in Egypt was a time of ease. When Joseph was alive, they were a privileged people. But they had forgotten their God. God had not forgotten them. He had not forgotten or forsaken them. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. That's the language of Genesis 15, where God makes his covenant with Abraham and says, I will give you the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Hittite, the Jebusite. This is recorded in a way to take your mind back to that promise of God. But also, God had not forgotten his determination regarding Moses. We talked about how when the parents saw something distinctive in this baby, that distinction, though they couldn't put their finger on it, was ultimately a distinction of his calling. That God had ordained Moses to be his deliverer. When he told Abraham, I will bring them out and I will bring them out in a great deliverance. And I will cause them, in a sense, to plunder those who have oppressed them. I will bring them out with many possessions. Moses was to be the instrument of that. And so God says, I am well aware of the affliction of my people. I have not forgotten them. And more importantly, I haven't forgotten my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The time has come to end their exile The time has come to fulfill my word to give them this land. And as I've said so many times in different contexts and certainly throughout uh, our study of Hebrews, it wasn't about a piece of geographical real estate. 
What Canaan represented was God's own dwelling place. And when God brings them out and they sing the song of Moses, and we'll look at that next time after the Red Sea episode, they're rejoicing in that God has delivered them, not just to set them free, not to give them a piece of real estate where they can live, but that he would bring them to himself to dwell with him in his sanctuary land, be with him on his holy mountain, to fulfill the promise to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. The relational intimacy of the people of God where he is, dwelling with him in the place that he inhabits. It's a kind of prototypical return to Eden. So this is God's commission to Moses. He says to him, The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. What's interesting then is Moses' reaction. When you think about Moses' act of faith, and the writer has made much of that, right? His renunciation of Egypt, his renunciation of his own status and prestige and the life he'd known as an Egyptian prince, and to embrace his own Hebrew identity and calling, he doesn't just flee from Egypt, he's forsaking Egypt. It's an act of faith, his departure from Egypt. And he spent 40 years doubtless thinking about what God's going to do, how is this going to play out, his own calling, his own role in this. And now, at last, that God of the fathers that Abraham has, or that Moses has trusted and owned all those years, the God of the fathers, the God of Israel, has spoken to him and said, now is the time. And you would expect that Moses would say, I've been waiting, I've been waiting and be enthusiastically eager to go and fulfill his calling. But instead, what you see is he questions and he pushes back. To me, it's surprising that you would see that with him. God appears to him, tells him he has this supernatural encounter with God, and what you see in Moses is reluctance. And he keeps making excuses. And I'm not going to read the whole context. But he begins by saying, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And each time God answers his objection, and each time Moses has further objections. How can this happen? How can I do this? What if they say this? What if they don't believe? What if this happens? I'm slow of tongue and slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. I'm not articulate. How is this going to happen? And each time God answers his objections. And when you lay that alongside Moses' legacy of faith, even as the writer of Hebrews treats it, it's easy to see why some see his response as an issue of humility. The text even says Moses was the most humble of men, right? So in other words, he's saying, God, I can't do this. I'm, you know, I, who are, you're so great, and I'm so weak, and I'm so small. You know, that this is an act of humility on his part, this pushing back, this questioning of God. And I think there may be some truth in it, but when you see how God finally responds to Moses with anger, you realize that this isn't just humility. 
There may be humility in it, but there's also a certain amount of fear and doubt in Moses' heart. And God is angry about that, but he says, I will give you your brother Aaron. He will speak for you. I'll put my words in your mouth. You'll speak to Aaron. Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. You will be as God to Pharaoh. You will be as God to the people, but Aaron will be your mouthpiece. And I, just without going down this path very far, I think that one of the things that this should encourage us in is that authentic faith and even a life defined by faithfulness doesn't mean there will never be wavering. It doesn't mean there will never be doubt. It doesn't mean there will never be fear, that there will never be insecurity. People often wrestle with David, the man after God's own heart, the man who, in even celebrating his relationship with God, talks about his own relentless faithfulness, his fidelity, that he loved the Lord, that he served the Lord, that there was a blamelessness, in a certain sense, in his own life with God. And yet we know that David was far from blameless. Certainly when we look at the Bathsheba episode or his counting the fighting men, or the various things. David was not a flawless man. And you look at even the Apostle Paul. I I love 2 Corinthians because it shows so much the humanness of Paul. It's easy for us to say, oh, you know, Paul was just so great. He He never wavered, he never struggled, he never wrestled. What a mighty man of God, I wish I could be Paul. And Paul begins in 2 Corinthians uncovering his own insecurities, his own doubts, his own fears, his own struggles. Even to the point of feeling that he had the sentence of death in himself. Fightings without fears within. Doubts, struggles. And yet he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in the Messiah and bears his fragrance through us in every place. Paul was not a flawless man. Moses was not a flawless man. Moses wavered. When it came time to be faithful in an uncertain and a very difficult circumstance, Moses wavered. I can't do this. I don't speak clearly. What if this? What if the people don't? What if? What if? What if? Well, God gave Moses Aaron to come alongside him and told him that they were to go to Egypt. He didn't tell them all of what they were going to encounter there. But he did give them the confidence, the bare assurance that this was going to be a triumph on his part. Interestingly, the thing that God tells them is that Pharaoh, he's going to have this conflict with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to continue to resist and resist and resist. And God says, I'm even going to hold him in that place of defiance. I'm going to harden his heart as he hardens his own heart before me. I'm going to hold him in that place that this whole scenario, this series of confrontations can play out until finally comes this climactic judgment by which he will let the people go. 
And that's all that Moses knows, is that God's going to triumph. But he doesn't know how it's all going to play out in the details. God says, go. Here's the outcome. Trust the outcome. Not the details. Not the process. The outcome. Trust the outcome. God was going to triumph over Egypt and liberate his people through a mighty act of retribution and deliverance. One, an act that Israel would forever commemorate in this thing called the Passover observance. And this is the specific act that the Hebrews writer pointed to as his last specific example of Moses' faith. So when they arrive in Egypt, and I'm moving along quickly, obviously, but when they arrive in Egypt... Moses and Aaron call the elders of Israel. They call the Hebrews and they explain to them who this God is, who has called them, what it is that he's going to do, that the time has come. Verse 29 of chapter 4. Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he performed these signs that would, because remember, Moses said, what if the people don't listen? What if, they don't, what if they don't believe that you sent me? Well, you work these signs, and they will know that, you sent, that, that I have sent you. So Moses performs these signs, and it says, The people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low in worship. Well, then they go to Pharaoh and they say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. Let them go that they might worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, who's this God? I don't recognize him. We have our own gods and the Pharaoh himself is a God. Who is this God of Israel? Why should I listen to him? And he says, evidently, Evidently, the people have too much time on their hands. If they're crying out to their God and you come in the name of their God to deliver them from their affliction, they have too much time on their hands. They need to work a little bit harder. Then they won't have time to whine and complain. So I'm going to have them produce the same amount of bricks in the mud pits, but now they have to gather their own straw. We're not going to bring them the straw to use. They have to go find the straw. So... Now the response of the people is, Moses, why did you come here? You've made our lives worse. We wish you'd have never come. Where's the blessing in this? You come to us as a deliverer, and all that's happened is that our suffering has increased. There's no triumph in this. Our suffering has increased. Well, What plays out then is a series of ten judgments. You have the Nile turning to blood, and then you have the frogs, and then the gnats, and then the flies, and then you have the pestilence on the animals, and then what the boils, and and the hail, and the locusts, and then the darkness. A series of plagues. And each one plays out in a way where, where there's this seeming progressive through the plane out of these, a progressive yielding on Pharaoh's part. But as soon as the, the plague or the calamity is lifted, then he steps back and says, no, I'm not going to let him go. Or I'll let the men go. But the women and children have to stay. 
or I'll let you all go, but the animals have to stay. So it's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth through this series of plagues. And the few times when it seemed like Pharaoh was going to relent, again, God would lift the the judgment and then he would go back to withstanding the Lord. And through all of that is this play between Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart. God is holding Pharaoh in this place of opposition. He's holding him in this place of defiance that this process that he's ordained can play out. So finally, it comes then to this high point, which is the 10th plague or the plague of the firstborn. And we read about this in chapter 11 of Exodus. The Passover is associated with this plague of the firstborn. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go. Now this is the very thing he had told Moses at Mount Horeb before he even departed for Egypt. So God said, the thing I told you that was going to break Pharaoh's back has now come. He says, and when after that, he will let you go. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. He's not just going to let you go. He's going to he won't be quick, be able to be quick enough in getting rid of you. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. It's interesting that the instruction comes in that sort of a way. The text records this in a way, and we don't know, you know if this all happened in, in one hearing of the Lord or whatever, but, but the way in which the, the text plays this out is that before God even gives them instructions about this thing called the plague of the firstborn and what they're to do. He tells them, I'm going to lead the people out. This is going to be decisive. Tell them to go and ask of their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver. It's again a very interesting thing in the sense that they don't even, well, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let me back up a little bit. This is going to be the death of the firstborn is going to be the means by which they're going to get out. But the people haven't heard that yet, at least the way the text presents that. But they're to think about this as a decisive thing. Now they're to go to their neighbors and they're to ask for this gold and silver. But how is God going to do this? And he does tell Moses how this will happen. This destroyer this destroying angel will go out throughout all of Egypt and not and he will not miss or spare a single household in all of Egypt even down to the animals the firstborn of every womb will be killed the firstborn of every womb from the pharaoh who sits on the throne to the maid who works behind the millstone to the cattle And yet, in all of that, the sons of Israel will not be touched. 
They will be distinguished. This as a final great calamitous judgment will prove beyond all doubt there will be no Egyptian throughout the land who will be able to say that the God of Israel does not distinguish his people. And that's what God even says to Moses. They will know. They will know that I recognize and I distinguish my people. I will do this. And it's in light of that that they're called to go to uh, their neighbors. But before I deal with that, what I wanted to draw out from that is that God making much of this distinction between Egypt and between his covenant people, it's easy to look at that and say, God cares about these people. He doesn't care about these people. But this distinguishing between Abraham's family and the Egyptians is not ultimately an issue of God despising or rejecting or denouncing the Egyptians or non-Israelites, if you want to put it that way. Again, seeing this all in the context of the Abrahamic promise, this distinguishing of Abraham's family is the way in which God will actually bring his blessing to all the families of the earth. So rather than this being ultimately God's saying, I will look after Israel, I will destroy Egypt because these people I care about, these people I don't care about, this distinguishing of Israel, this setting apart, this covenant election of Israel is the very way in which God will demonstrate and carry out his love for the human race that he has created. The God of Israel is the creator God. And his distinguishing of Israel is precisely for the sake of the nations. Israel was set apart to be his instrument for gathering all mankind to himself, including Egypt. It's interesting in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm and is cited uh, you know, in the context of Jesus' own passion, his crucifixion. As that psalm speaks about this one who is suffering, this one who is suffering at the hands of of unjust men, suffering unjustly. And it's the Psalm of David, but listen to what he says. In the midst of my suffering, as I consider this and the way the dogs have surrounded me and, and the opposition that comes against me, David says, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember, and they will turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he, and he rules over all the nations." All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who are yet to be born that he has indeed performed it. 
the psalmist, even as David looks at this suffering that he's enduring in kind of a prophetic sort of sense, there's this recognition that the goal of God is the salvation of the world of men. And so even when we look at this issue of the distinction in this context between Egypt and Israel, we have to keep it in the Abrahamic context. That's the point that I'm trying to make there. Because ultimately, and we saw that when we looked before in Isaiah 19, God says that when this work is complete, Egypt will be called my people. Egypt and Assyria will be third parties with my people Israel. These great enemies of the theocratic kingdom and the people and God himself in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, when this work is done, they will be called my people. They will be third parties. Assyria, Egypt, Israel. So Moses... And the, the Hebrews both had an obligation of faith with respect to this final judgment. And now I want to get back to the neighbor thing. You know, when we look at that, we, we can see how incredibly strange and difficult that would have been. Just think about it. Nine plagues have failed. The people's suffering is increased. Moses comes to them and he says, this time it's going to work. This time it's going to happen. And so what God says you're to do is go to your Egyptian neighbors and ask them for their gold and silver and and, and clothing. It's like, yeah, right, we're really going to do that. An enslaved, powerless people going to their oppressors and saying, give us your silver and gold. Under the best of circumstances, they, they would maybe have, have thought, uh, you know, based on natural reasoning, if we even make it back to our homes alive, albeit empty-handed, we'll be grateful. If they just simply send us back home, we'll be happy. But most likely, we'll end up dead. But God says, go and, and ask them. And you say, well, the text says that they were going to, that, that God was going to cause the Egyptians to be favorable to them. Well, the Israelites didn't know that until they actually went to their neighbors and said, give us your gold and silver. They wouldn't know that the hearts of the Egyptians had been turned to be favorable to them and that they would actually succeed. It was an act of faith on their part to go and do something that seemed ridiculous and dangerous, absurd. Why would we do that? And yet God required them to go. And it would have been very difficult for Moses to even ask them to do that. Remember, his credibility was pretty much in the tank. He had made their lives worse. They weren't confident that he was the deliverer. Now he goes and he says, hear what God has told me now to tell you. Go get gold and silver from your neighbors. Moses had to act in faith. The people had to act in faith. But the text tells us three times, even in advance of this and then in the playing out of it, that God had determined to cause the Egyptians to be favorable to the Israelites. And they did give them clothing and gold and silver and things. But ultimately, those things 
the, the, the precious metals certainly were not for, their, not for themselves, not for their own benefit. But we see as soon as they get out in the wilderness that those precious metals were for the building of the Lord's sanctuary. Exodus 25, take a contribution from among the people to build me a sanctuary that I would dwell in the midst of my people. What's the point? The wealth of Egypt was what built the dwelling place of God where he communed with his people. And I'm not saying Moses understood that at the time or the sons of Israel did, but God did. And and the fact that this first dwelling place, this tabernacle, would be a, it would establish a pattern. It would be a, a, um, a kind of first case prefiguration of how Israel was to understand the dwelling place of God, built from the wealth of the nations. The place where Israel met the Lord was built from the wealth of the nations. And that was true in the, in the, in the uh, temple that Solomon built. David collected all the contributions for that temple. Where did they come from? From the tribute that David collected from the nations. And Solomon even petitioned uh, the ruler of Lebanon to give him cedar, right? Cedar wood. Even the cedar came from Lebanon for the temple. And that temple was destroyed. And when they're rebuilding the second temple, and the people are discouraged, and they're saying, this is nothing like the first temple, right? In the prophecy of Haggai, what does God say? Understand the glory of this second, this latter temple will be greater than the former temple. Once again, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. And I will bring in the precious value of the nations. And in that way, I will build this house. And in this place, I will give peace. See, God wanted Israel to understand that even from the very beginning, in a sense, the worship of the nations, the the bestowment of the nations that would build his dwelling place was pointing to what his ultimate goal was, that he would build his ultimate sanctuary from the wealth of the nations. In what sense? People will come from north and south and east and west and be built into the Lord's house, Zechariah 6. The precious value of the nations will build the Lord's house. Having come to him as living stones, you are built into a spiritual house to be a sanctuary, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord. And Jesus comes into the world as the cornerstone, and he says, I will build Yahweh's sanctuary on myself, right? out of living stones. So at the very beginning, this shaking down of the Egyptians wasn't just to show that God is powerful or that he's able to move upon the hearts of pagan people. And it wasn't even just to enrich his own uh, covenant household and give them something to live on in a barren wilderness. It was building the case for, again, where this is ultimately going. And and that's why I, I wanted to lay that first foundation of saying that this God who distinguishes between Israel and Egypt is, is distinguishing unto the goal that he has to gather all of the world of men into his family. To build 
the covenant household of Abraham in the Messiah himself. He's the creator God. The God of Israel is the God of all men. Israel had been set apart to be his instrument for gathering all mankind to himself. So finally, then, I want to just look at the ritual prescription that God gives to Israel concerning this thing called the plague of the, of the firstborn. This is where we get to the, the um, Passover itself. So God tells them, this is in chapter 12, he says, speak, well, let me just pick it up at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Their whole calendar was restarted. It was reordered around the Passover. And we'll talk about why that's significant. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor closest to his house are to take one, according to the number of persons, according to what each man should eat. Because the point is, there's nothing to be left over. You don't want to have a lamb for a few people and have something left over. The lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. You select it, you take it, you keep it in your house for four days. Then you sacrifice it at twilight. Twilight is when you start the 15th day, right? The, the Jewish day goes from sunset to sunset. So at twilight, the start of the 15th day is when you sacrifice it. And then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. The lintel is the the header that goes across between the doorposts. So basically the frame around your door, you're to, with hyssop, you're to paint blood, the blood of the lamb, on the entrance to your houses. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, its head, its legs, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over till morning. Whatever is left of it till morning you shall burn with fire. You shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt that night, will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I will triumph. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So there's the prescription of what they're to do, how they're to select this lamb, how they're to wait, how they're to kill it, how they're to eat it, and then also how they are to apply the blood to their doorposts. So it is, as the writer of Hebrews says, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. The Passover and the sprinkling of blood. He treats those things separately. But the first thing I want to bring out about that is, uh, and this is a grammatical issue, but, but the writer of Hebrews actually uses 
when he says he kept the Passover, he uses what's called the perfect tense. And this isn't a grammar lesson, but you would expect him to use what's called the aorist tense. That's been kind of consistent throughout this passage. Aorist basically treats an action just in, as a, a simple statement of something that's happened. I ate the toast. No elaboration, no, no kind of development. It's just kind of a statement of something that happened. And that's the way we would tend to read it based on how it's written here. But the perfect tense speaks of, of an action where there is something that continues beyond it. An effect, a consequence, a state, a condition. Often in English we translate it as um, I have eaten instead of I ate. But it has a continuative sense to it. And you say, okay, well, why would he choose that? Because he's emphasizing not the episode, this episode per se, but its continuing effect and significance. And that comes out where God says in verse 14, this will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. See, this isn't a one-off. And when he attaches Moses' faith to keeping the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, he's saying more than just Moses did what he was told. God said, do this, and Moses did it. Moses is doing this with the sense that it has a greater significance than simply the action itself that's occurring at this point in time. This looks to something bigger than itself. And God even speaks to that by saying, this is to be a memorial to you. And we've already seen where he said, this is to you are to reorder your calendar around this event. Not just the Passover, but this thing of your liberation. They were to understand the Passover episode as inaugurating a new reality. A birth out of death. A new birth. Hence, a new calendar. The Passover initiated their birth into the covenant union and communion that had been pledged to their fathers. This is the beginning of your months. This is the beginning of your existence. This is a new reality. Israel was being born through a mighty deliverance achieved by God's complete triumph over the subjugating power, a triumph affected by the death of the firstborn. And so Israel's identity and life as God's covenant son, and remember, that was the way that Moses even presented Israel to Pharaoh. Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my only begotten son. Let my son go that he might worship me in the wilderness. Israel is my son, my covenant son. And Israel's life and identity as covenant son was bound up in that triumph. Passover was the fundamental way in which Israel understood who it was, how it had come about, the meaning of its existence. That's why God said this is to be a perpetual ordinance for you so you don't forget who you are, 
how you were born. What is the purpose of your existence? This isn't just about liberating you from your suffering. This is about bringing you to myself that you would be my people and I would be your God, that you would be my son in faithfulness in order that through your faithful life in the world, all the families of the earth will come to know that I am the God of all men and all the families will be blessed through you. That was Israel's calling Israel's mandate. That was their vocation as God's covenant people. And when God found fault with them, it was that rather than causing the nations to know him, they had joined with the nations in blaspheming him and opposing him and misrepresenting him. God commanded that the Passover be a perpetual celebration of remembrance, that they would never forget who they were and why they were. What it meant for Israel to be Israel, for Israel to be faithful. And it had the two dimensions again of the ritual of the Passover, the ritual of the sprinkling of the blood, the Passover referring to the lamb and the eating and the preparation of it. And Moses observed all of that in faith, the writer says. He trusted that God would indeed deliver the the children of Israel through that. He told them that that was going to happen that very night. And they continued to observe it in the wilderness. You see that in Numbers 9. They're still celebrating the Passover The Passover observance came to symbolize Israel's integrity and covenant faithfulness. And that's why you see in in the life of Israel that when there are times of returning to the Lord, when there are times of repentance, like under Josiah or under Hezekiah, you see the recapturing of the Passover again. And I won't read those passages, but just search it out for yourself. Josiah in his reforms and his cleansing and his returning the people back to Yahweh, they celebrate a great Passover at the appropriate time. And under Hezekiah, a great Passover. And the prophets themselves who spoke against Israel's unfaithfulness and they promised that God was going to arise and he was going to bring another exile, another subjugation, another enslavement. But once again, there would also be another Passover. Particularly, you see this in Isaiah 51. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go read these passages. But there's the call of the prophet on behalf of the people in Isaiah. Arise, Yahweh, as you did in the days of old. When you slew Rahab the dragon and you brought your people through on dry land. Arise and do that work again. A second exodus, a second Passover. And that was what the people were thinking in terms of. As the Passover, as all of what it entailed, Yahweh arising, meeting them as covenant, as his covenant people, triumphing over the subjugating powers, liberating them, bringing them to himself to be with him where he is. And now again for unfaithfulness, they're back in diaspora. 
The northern kingdom's gone. Judah's gone. And even though they're coming back in a certain sense, they're still in exile. You see, Ezra, at the time that the temple is rebuilt, celebrating a great Passover, and yet Nehemiah says we are still enslaved to this day. The nations rule over us. They were waiting for another Passover that would fulfill that event. Jesus obviously saw his own death and its triumph in terms of the Passover, and we saw that very clearly when we went through the Gospel of John. It was no accident that the time for Jesus' self-giving for his own triumph was at Passover, Because the Jews understood that when Yahweh arose, it was going to be a second Passover. This was not just going to be something where my personal sins are forgiven, although that's clearly true. But this was going to be God arising to deal with the covenant unfaithfulness of Abraham's people to liberate them deliver them from their subjugators, and bring them out and regather them to himself. And Jesus understood his own death and resurrection through that lens. That's why he chose Passover. And you see, even in the upper room, as he's talking about the meaning of what's going to happen the next day, he, how does he explain and provide that instruction? Through the Passover meal and everything that surrounds it. I have zealously longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, that you would know. And what we call the Lord's table is the rethinking, the reimagining, the, re, the transforming, the fulfilling of the Passover significance in the light of the Christ event. The Passover significance for Israel, their longing for the days that the prophets had said when God would again arise and do this mighty delivering, restoring, and gathering work, that was realized in the true son who embodies Israel in himself, Isaiah 49. Well, what does this mean for us? It means that as Moses in faith kept the Passover, in a very real sense, we in faith keep the Passover. I'm not talking about doing a Seder every spring. I'm saying that we keep the Passover as we share in the Messiah in whom the Passover is fulfilled. And not just as sharing in him by a new birth in him, but as living out in a continual faithful remembrance and celebration, God's triumph in him and the purpose of that triumph and the outcome of that triumph and the ultimate consummative realization of that triumph. In other words, our faith requires us to be a Passover people, a Passover people. And that's what the table speaks to. That understanding, you know, I didn't know what Tim was going to talk about, but this whole thing of living by faith and having our eyes set on the triumph of God, that's what it means to be a Passover people. To trust and believe and recognize that God has conquered the rulers and authorities and powers and principalities. And it doesn't mean that life will be easy. Again, Paul talks that way from a prison cell. 
But this triumph of God is real, and the liberation of the world from the curse is real, and our share in that is real. We are to be a Passover people. Jesus brings all that to sharp focus in this thing we call the Lord's table. As he understood it, as he instituted it, that's the way in which we are a Passover people. That's what the obedience of faith is all about. That's what it is to live the obedience of faith. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and it's in a particular, set in a very narrow context of a situation of immorality uh, within the the church there at Corinth, but it really speaks to the whole of the instruction that Paul was bringing to the Corinthians. And he said, again, here's his way of saying, we need to be a Passover people. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. The Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Be a Passover people. Understand how the Passover has been fulfilled in the Messiah. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Be a Passover people. Live by faith, not by sight. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these things. And, you know, we have people today who still want to celebrate, even in the Christian community, they want to celebrate the Passover Seder as, as the Jewish people do. And it's not that that's an evil or a wicked thing. But I think it testifies that people don't recognize how all of that symbolism, all of that longing, all of that prefiguration, all of that faithfulness through the centuries in, in, in holding tightly to that ordinance, how all of that has become yes and amen in the Messiah and what it really means for us to keep the feast as people who are sharers in his triumph, as people who've been liberated, as people who have been set free to be bond slaves of our God, people who are unleavened, let us keep the feast in sincerity and truth, not as a matter of a ritual exercise from time to time, but as a matter of the orientation of our minds and our lives. I pray that you would help us in these things, that we would truly live lives defined by the obedience of faith. We ask these things, Father, with all of the confidence, all of the hope, all of the surety that we have in Christ our Lord. Our faith is in him. And it's in his name that we ask all of this. Amen.